Amen. We've been in a study of Matthew chapter 11, and uh, our series is Rest for the Weary, and we're looking at verses 25 to 30 of Matthew chapter 11, so turn over in your Bibles there, and um, I just want to read these verses for us so they're fresh in our mind, and then we're going to jump over to the Gospel of Luke just for a second as we introduce our message this morning. Um, Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And the one whom the Son wills, to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We've been in our ongoing study of Matthew chapter 11 this morning, and the key to this section, as we looked at last week, is verse 28. We can't miss that verse because that kind of shows us what the whole text is about. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest. Now, the Lord has many invitations scattered throughout the Word of God, especially even in the New Testament. You see them from Matthew all the way to the book of Revelation. But there's one that's kind of interesting over in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, and we just want to look at that uh, this morning because the reason Jesus came into the world is to save sinners. And he came to give us that rest that we talked about last week, that, that, re, that cease from doing any works at all. And so as we look at, at Luke chapter 14, it's an invitation that the Lord issues, and he's using a parable here to explain this invitation. And... Um, it's basically a parable. is a story of uh, relating a spiritual truth, um, not necessarily a true story. It's a, it's a made-up story, but it always relates to a spiritual truth. And so in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 15, we see the parable of this great banquet or supper. And he says there in verse 15, Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so he uses that as an introduction to introduce this parable that he's going to tell us right now. Verse 16. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. Now, this guy must have been a pretty incredible uh, individual. He was probably a king or a ruler or something because he had, obviously, he had lots of money. And um, it's, it's a great supper. It's a feast. It's like throwing Redwood City a feast. You know, that's kind of what the idea is. And it says that he invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. So you've got to get this in your mind. This, this king prepares this feast, this great individual, and he lets the people know, Hey, I'm going to have a feast, and uh, I'm inviting you to come. And they, they obviously heeded his invitation at some, some point there, because it says he invited many. To invite many, you must have to go out to people and say, hey, you're invited to the dinner uh, next Saturday night. Okay. And so they, they agreed that they would come out for this dinner. That's implied there by the phrase invited many. And then it says in verse 17 that he sent his servant out when everything was ready. It took some time to repair it. That's how big of a feast it was. And he went to those who were invited, and he said, come... For all things are now ready. But look at what verse 18 says. But they all with one accord <laughs> began to make what? Excuses. They began to make excuses. So you've already responded. You've said, yeah, I'll be there. Let me know when the time is. Let me know when the feast is ready. I'm coming. So this poor guy is preparing a feast for many. And the issue issues out the rings the dinner bell, so to speak, and they all begin to make excuses. I can't come. 
Look at the first excuse, verse 18. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go see it. I ask you to have me excused. See, that's why we know it was probably a, a pretty wealthy or pretty powerful individual in the company because they're always asking to be excused. And so they needed some form of permission. They, were, they weren't just going to blow this guy off. They wanted to let him know. But think of that first excuse. I mean, that's kind of silly. Who here has ever bought a piece of land sight unseen? Hopefully nobody. It'd be kind of a foolish thing to do. If you've never even seen it, that would be ridiculous. And why would he have to go right away and see the land? I mean, it's, it's just kind of a very, very lame excuse. Look at the second excuse. And another, verse 19, said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Once again, you would never, in this culture, go out and buy even one oxen without seeing what it can do, without putting a plow behind it and having it pull to see if it's strong, see if it's healthy. You would never do something like that. Nobody buys an unproven ox. I mean, how would you determine the price if you didn't even go look at it? I mean, that, it's just kind of a ridiculous statement. And why would you have to go test this oxen at a particular time, especially when this banquet's going on, that you already accepted the invitation to? So it's a lame excuse. Third excuse, I like this one. This is rather interesting. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. I mean, that's probably the lamest one of all. How many times have you ever gone to your wife guy and said, hey, so-and-so invited us over to dinner. Do you want to go? I mean, nine times out of ten, the wife's on board with something like that. It's the guy that's like, ah, I'd rather sit home and watch TV or do whatever, you know. So he married a wife and he said, oh, I can't go. I mean, how silly. Bring her with you. See, the whole point of Jesus telling this parable is that these were very silly excuses. And he was kind of using them as an example for Israel. Throughout history, or history, Israel had been extended the invitation for the kingdom. Over and over, they've been extended the invitation for the kingdom. And Israel has said, oh, we'll come. Yeah, we're excited when the Messiah comes. Let us know. Oh, we're going to be all over that one. We'll be there. You just tell us when it's ready. And when the Messiah came and said, hey, I'm here, What'd they do? You're going to make excuses. Oh, you're not the Messiah. You're this, you're that, whatever. Well, look, at does this individual in the story cancel the banquet? Gee, nobody's coming. I'll just cancel the thing. That's how we do things in church sometimes. Ah, it doesn't look like anybody's going to show up. I'll just cancel it. <laughs> That's silly. It says in verse 21... So that that servant came and reported these things to his master. Look at what happens. Then the master of the house being angry, that would be similar to what you would face if you sign up for the Thanksgiving dinner and say, yeah, I'm bringing this, I'm coming, I'm bringing this, I'm coming. And we got 50, 60 people signed up and we got turkeys coming out of our ears over there to feed everybody. And one by one you all call up, uh, you know what, we're not coming. I got to go fix my flat tire, or I got to, you know, I mean, you're just making, I mean, guaranteed, the next time we saw you, we would be angry with you. <laughs> well, obviously, you go through all that work of setting something up and nobody shows up. Being angry, he said to his servant, look at what he says, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the, maim the maimed and the lame and the blind. In other words, he says, that's fine. I issued all these invitations. They said they were going to come. And it was probably a certain segment of society. This guy was wealthy. The last drop of the hat, they say, I can't be there. Sorry, I got a married wife. I got to go prove my oxen. I got to look at my land that I purchased. And some lame excuses. He said, fine, we're not canceling this. I'm not going to let all this food go to waste. He told his servant to go out into the, the, the highways and byways, basically, and find anybody you can. that my house may be filled. And so it says in verse 22, the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. In other words, I went out and I got all these people, and there's still room. 
And look at what he says. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and byways, the hedges, and compel them to come in. Compel them. That my house may be filled. Verse 24, for I say to you that none of those men who were invited and didn't come, is the implication, shall taste of my supper. He's using that as an example. He's using that as a story. He's saying, look, the invitation of Christ is broad. Notice he he goes out, and the people that got the invitation, they couldn't come. So he has a servant go out, and it says, bring in the people that can't come on their own. Notice that? These were people who were physically unable to enter this guy's house. The maimed, the lame, they couldn't get there unless somebody brought them. See, that's, that's the context of this parable. The blind couldn't even find it. I mean, they'd just be wandering around the street somewhere. They didn't know where this guy's house was. And this was the group that had to be dragged in They had to be ushered in. They had to be carried in. They had to be led in, one by one. They were probably the nobodies of society, the lower class. They were the destitute and the hungry and the outcast, the hurting. It's just like our Lord to reach out to these people. He doesn't cancel the banquet. He says, no, go out and find people that are willing to come. If these highfalutin people aren't willing to come, then you know what? Find somebody that is. And so the Lord turned to the poor, the blind, and the maimed. And as we found in Matthew, he has that invitation out to the wise and the prudent. We looked at that last week, and they didn't necessarily respond. And that's the parallel here. He wanted a full house. But all who refused the Lord's invitation for salvation... Here's the principle, will be excluded from the kingdom. God is extending to you a salvation invitation. But if you're willing to refuse that, don't think you're going to be in the the heavenly kingdom one day. You won't be. And that's basically a marvelous picture of what the Lord shows us, how he came to reach first his people, Israel, those who had been invited guests, those who were the first ones invited to come to the feast. But when the the feast was ready, the banquet was ready, they didn't respond. They wouldn't come. And so he turns to the outcasts. He turns to the hurting. He turns to the humble, the deprived, the destitute. These are all people who had no resources. And they were the ones who came. The point of the parable is that God will call whoever will come. God will call whoever will come. And those who come will be those who have no resources. See, you can't come to Christ thinking you're getting there on your own. That's not how we come to Christ. Those who are brought because they don't have any other way to get there on their own, those are the ones who are able and willing. They're willing to come. This is feedback, so I don't know if you need to turn it down or whatever. Got a lot of ring up here. Let's go back to Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11. And you can see the direct parallel as we unfold this text this morning. Matthew chapter 11. In, Ma- in Luke 14, the Lord calls you to a banquet. Um, those of you who have everything going on in your life, those of you who've got your oxen in place and your property and even your wife, all that stuff, the, the invitation is there for you. But in the story, we saw how they turned the invitation down. And then he turned to a second group of people, those who were hurting, those who knew they had a need. And that's typical of our Lord's invitation because it's, always, it's only the desperate people who have a need to respond to the gospel. Those are the ones that come. And so when we see there in verse 28 of Matthew 11, come unto me all you who are labor and are heavy laden. Who's he talking about? He's talking about hurting people. He's talking about people who are burdened down. People with burdens who want to get rid of those burdens. And so our Lord offers an invitation to come into the heart, to come into the life. 
to invite us to a feast, and in this particular passage in Matthew, invite us to rest. Now, last time we looked at that key word rest, and we found out that that word means to cease from all action, and it's kind of a, uh, used as an illustration of salvation. We looked at that last week. The word rest means salvation. We looked at Hebrews 3 and 4 and discovered that last week. And so the invitation to, to, is to salvation rest. And there's five elements of Jesus' invitation here in Matthew chapter 11 that we want to look at. The first one we looked at last week, and the first one was humility. Humility. He says in verse 25, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden the things from the wise, these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them unto babes. And we talked about how the wise and prudent kind of was an illustration of the, the Jewish people who were intellectually knowledgeable religious people in Jesus' day. And he's using a lot of sarcasm here. Because he's calling them wise and prudent, but really what he means is you're basically stupid. You think you're smart. You think you have wisdom. But you know what? You don't. You have intellectual pride. And that intellectual pride is going to keep you from the kingdom of heaven. Unless you deal with it. Unless you come onto me as a babe. See, they thought, hey, they got everything together. They had their little oral traditions. They had the Old Testament. They had all the religious uh, deals going on and everything. And, you know, they thought, they just thought, hey, we don't need anything more. Look at us. We're religious people. They had no recognized need. You can't come to a Savior if you don't have a need of being saved. That would be silly. They were too wise for their own good. And it says that this was hidden from them, but it was revealed onto babes. And we looked at how he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. I mean, it speaks of the sovereignty of God. And he talks about babes. He talks about infants, little little. Creatures that can't even take care of themselves. If you left a baby just alone, it would die eventually. It's totally dependent upon the mother's care. And see, the infant has no capacity to care for itself whatsoever. And that's what he's using this illustration. He's saying the people that are going to come are the people who are utterly helpless, utterly dependent. They're empty. They have nothing. There's no resources at all that they can look at themselves and say, oh yeah, I don't need that. They know that they're desperately dependent on God's grace. And those are the kind of people to whom God reveals the gospel to. I mean, it's a perfect illustration of the kind of the people. And here in, in, in verse 25, God revealed it onto babes. People who have no faith in their own resources. That's why over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, when you look at the church, there are not many what? Wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, because it says God has chosen the foolish and the weak and the base things. Because the reason he does that is because it's the destitute that come to him. That's why humility is the first element of this invitation. Because pride is a barrier. Pride says, I can do it on my own. I can figure this out. I have my own resources. It's the wise and the prudent who take the position, and that's, they're shut out of the kingdom. But babes are the ones who are utterly, totally dependent on the Savior. I mean, if you stop and think about this, if you look over at the Gospel of John, chapter 3, you see the story of Nicodemus. And here's somebody... He's probably the most important teacher in all of Israel at this time. He's a man who'd studied long the the, the Old Testament. He knew his scripture. He's a man who mastered the traditions and and all the the legal wranglings of of Judaism. He was a man that was obviously respected in the community. And it says in John 3 that he came to Jesus at night. We don't know why he did that. Perhaps 
That was the only time that Jesus was available because at every other time he was just smothered with people around him or maybe he didn't want to be seen as some believe. But the question in his heart was very clear. He basically says in verse 4, or in verse, um, I'm sorry, verse 1 there, he came, and this man came to Jesus by night, and he asked him this, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that came from God, and no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said, most assuredly I say, and here's what Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what was Nicodemus's question? The very next verse. How can a man be what? Born when he is old. Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered and said, Unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be what? Born again. You have to go all the way back, Nicodemus, to the time when you were a little baby. <laughs> That's how you come to Christ. You can't come to Christ with all your religious trappings and all your knowledge and everything. You can't do that. That's not the way you'll make it into the kingdom. You have to go all the way back and start over like a little baby. I mean, can you imagine what a jolt that would be to an educated Jew in Jesus' day? What are you talking about? Do you know who I am? What he was saying is, you know what? You're too smart for your own good, Nicodemus. You've got to go back to ground zero and start over. Be like a little baby. That's where it begins. Humility of the heart. There's no salvation at all ever in Scripture for a proud person. For a person that thinks that somehow they have it all wrapped up in and of themselves. So humility is the, the basic element here in the invitation that Jesus is giving. And we looked at that in depth last week. Well, today we want to start with the second word, and that's in verse, found in verse 27 of Matthew 11. It says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one whom the Father wills to what? Reveal him. second word is Revelation. A genuine invitation must consider the reality of revelation. Not only a humble heart, but a God who reveals his truth to us. I mean, that verse that we just read, verse 27, is an incredible verse. I mean, you could spend days on that verse and still not probably understand what it says. But if you summarize by that word, reveal, that's what it says back in verse 25 as well of uh, um, Matthew 11. He says, you've hidden it from the wise and the prudent, but you've revealed it unto babes. See, in verse 25, it says that God revealed the things of the kingdom unto babes. He delivered that onto these little babies. He revealed his truth to them. Well, what's he saying? He's saying basically that all truth is bound up in the Father and in the Son. There's no truth that exists outside of God. None at all. And the only people who know that truth are the people to whom the Son does what? The Son reveals it to. So salvation comes to those who are humble, all right? But it comes on the basis of the sovereign revelation of God. That's a very important thing to understand today. See, no man can ever know anything about the kingdom, about salvation, unless God's Son reveals it to him. Do you understand that? It's not in our evangelistic techniques. It's not in having a slick little track. It's not being able to, you know, go through the, use the law and the Ten Commandments. If God's not revealing that truth to them, it's not going to happen. Now, you may be able to lead that person in a prayer or have them raise a hand or do something, come down an aisle, some kind of an invitation that you're giving that Scripture doesn't even speak about, by the way. And they go through this physical act and then you kind of say, yeah, now you're a believer. And, you, and, and maybe they haven't been saved. 
But because they did something physically, we make them think they're saved. See, that's very dangerous. That's why I'm not a big fan of public invitations. Because anybody worth their salt who's a public speaker could make people feel guilty and burdened and play certain music and have people come down to an aisle and pray. And a lot of times you hear people that do this and, and sometimes you talk to them and they, you know, yeah, you know, I do a public invitation every week. And it's kind of frustrating because the same people come down every week. It's the same people praying to get saved every week. And it's like, well, what do you do it for? Don't you think God can save them in their seats? I mean, God can save a heart anywhere. It's not based on our ingenuity how to create an atmosphere where all that can happen. God uses that sometimes. I'm not saying he doesn't because there have been people that have been genuinely saved that way. But I think a lot of times, more than not, there's a lot of people that fall through the cracks. And so this revelation is not available to the human mind. It's not available based on your intellect. As we looked at last week, it's based on the revelation of God. See, verse 25 talks about man's attitude. The attitude of being broken and talks about humility. Well, verse 27 talks about God's part in all this, that being revelation. There has to be a sovereign revelation for someone to be saved. Well, let's look at this a little further. The first statement there, he says, all things are delivered unto me by my Father. There are two things here. It's interesting when you look at this statement that he's trying to get across to us. First thing is, is it's a statement of his deity. It's a statement of the deity of Christ. It's a statement of the essence of the heart of the kingdom gospel. It's a heart of faith. See, that is why the Bible says if any man denies that Christ is God in the flesh, he's what? He's accursed. He's anathema. He's on his way to hell. He's violated the basis of the, the, the foundation of the gospel. The gospel begins with the understanding, the fact that Jesus Christ is God. If you can't come to me and say, yeah, I believe that Jesus Christ is God, you, I have nothing else to say to you. What am I supposed to say? Okay, well, just accept him as your whatever. I mean, what are you going to accept him as? If he's not God, he can't save you. Why would you commit yourself to follow his teachings and stuff if he's not God, if he's just like us? The gospel begins, beloved, with the idea, the fact that Jesus is God. And he says it two ways. First of all, he says, my father. You know, this is the first time that this is ever used in the New Testament. First time this phrase, my father, is ever used in the New Testament. Right here in Matthew chapter 11. Now, he said father, and he said our father, but he's never said my father. And what he's doing is he's allowing people to see that there's a unique relationship between the God the Father and God the Son. He is God's only begotten Son. And he said it in other places. John 10, he says, I and my Father are one. Now some cults of the Jehovah Witnesses in particular say, no, that verse means one in purpose. It doesn't mean they're, they're one in God. They don't believe that. They believe there are many gods. Well, it's kind of interesting. If you look at that text in John 10, the religious leaders of Jesus' day knew exactly what he was saying because in the following verses, it says that they picked up stones and they were going to stone him. Why would the religious leaders get so upset if he was just saying, oh, me and my father, we're just one in purpose. No, he was saying that he was God. That was considered blasphemy in Jesus' day. And in verse 33, he says there, we, we stone you for blasphemy because thou being a man, make yourself God. So there was no question in the mind of the people surrounding Christ about what he was saying. My father brings a new intimacy into his relationship with God the Father. And so the first statement about his deity is that intimacy with his father, my father, first time used. The second one, he says there, all things are delivered unto me. What does that mean, all things? It means just what it says, all things. Nothing's left out. God gave him everything. 
It's actually in the aorist tense. What it means is at one point in time, everything was handed over to the Son. And that even goes back, I mean, in our minds, we can't even conceive this, probably even before, back in time eternity, this happened. Because God transcends time. So whenever it happened, however it happened, he handed everything over to Christ. That's why in Matthew chapter 28, verse 8, Jesus says, all authority is given unto who? Unto me, in heaven and in earth. It was given to me by my Father. So all things means all things. <laughs> it means that Jesus had authority over Satan. He had authority over demons. He had authority over illness. He had authority to save. He had authority to forgive sin, to judge. He had authority over everything, earth, heaven, hell, men, angels, devils, time, death, eternity, salvation, damnation, grace, judgment, life, death, all things, truth, righteousness, glory, peace. You can go on and on and on. Deliverance from sin, victory and temptation, overcoming the world. He had authority over everything. Everything pertaining to the universe is under Christ's authority. And so he says here, I have this intimate relationship with the Father, and I possess all sovereignty, I possess all authority which the Father gives me. It's a statement of his deity. And then, later on in the verse, he says, no man knows the Son but the Father. I mean, look at that and read that over and over a couple times. Now, if the Son is God, then no one can truly know the Son but the Father, because only God can know God. Do you understand that? We cannot understand God. We can't comprehend God. Well, our little, you know, small little brains, there's no way that we could ever comprehend who God is, who Christ is, outside of his divine intervention. And so therefore, only the Father really knows me. That's what Jesus is saying. No man knows me. And you know what? When he said that and the religious people of his day heard it, they just became unraveled. Who do you think you are? What do you mean? We cannot know God. We're religious people. Look at the way we dress. Look at what we do. Look at all the laws we observe. They thought they knew God. See, they thought they had it all figured out. They were the wise and prudent, the spiritual, intellectual pride just welled up in them. And Jesus goes to those people and he says, no, you know what? Only the Father knows me. And then look at what he says. Neither knows anybody but the Father except the Son. I mean, that, that is another statement. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Not only does only the Father know me, but only I know the Father. He's making statements of his deity. He's saying this, basically, that all knowledge of divine truth is bound up in the Trinity. It's a mutual sharing of truth between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's locked in the Trinity. There's no way to break through that. There's no way to tap into that and, and put some truth in your brain. It's unavailable. You can never perceive it naturally, is what he's saying. That's why philosophy is fruitless. That's why man-made religion is fruitless. It's all vain. Because all revelation, all content, all truth about God and his kingdom is bound up, it's locked up in that trinity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. How do you get it? Look at what it says at the end of verse 27. He tells us. And the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. And the one who the Son wills to reveal him. In other words, the only way you're ever going to know the truth by the revelation is by the Son. 
A revelation from God himself. That's why when people come to me and say, hey, you know, uh, I, I realize that I don't have a relationship with God and I, I want to get to know him better. How do, I, you know, how do I do this get saved thing? You know, I say, well, do you understand you're a sinner? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. Okay, do you understand that God provided the way of salvation for you? Oh, yeah, sure. And you, you, you go through this thing with them. And... Well, I'm just kind of unsure. I just don't know, you know. I mean, the thing I tell them is I said, you know what? You go home, you open your Bible, and you ask God to reveal to you him. You reveal, God, reveal yourself to me in a way that it can only be from you. If that's your hard desire, if you're sincerely searching after salvation, God will reveal himself to you. He may use another person. He may use, you know, something on the TV. He may use his word. He may, a lot of different ways God can do it. But he will reveal himself to you in a way that you'll know it's him. And he'll show you your sinfulness before him because he's holy. And he'll show you the need that you have to be saved. I mean, in a way, this verse is kind of a simple verse, and yet it's kind of profound. It's simply saying there that you have to be a babe who knows nothing, understands nothing, has no resources in and of yourselves. And he is the only one who can truly perceive what only God can know of eternal truth locked up in the infinite mind of the Trinity. How does he do that? Because God chooses to reveal it to him. So that salvation becomes its foundation, the combination of a humble heart and an infinite God revealing himself to that humble heart. See, those two elements always have to be in balance in salvation. Because if they're not, you're going you're gonna to be skewed in your presentation of the gospel one way or the other. You always have to understand you have man's part. You have a, a heart that's prepared, an open heart of humility. But you also have God's part, his sovereign, gracious revelation. You can't have salvation one without the other. God won't save a prideful heart. God won't save a humble heart if he's not revealed truth to it. So we have to understand that. The only way that we can understand the truth of the gospel is when the Son of God, it says, reveals it to us. And here were these Jewish people, as they were throughout all history, and thought they had it all down pat. They thought they had their relationship with God all figured out. And obviously their minds were never opened up to who Christ was. You know, it reminds me, and I'm going to show you a couple pictures here. When we were over in Israel, these are pictures that we took. Um, I remember seeing these people. This is the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, we call it, in Israel. This is the outside. Go to the next slide there. This is as you're entering in. You have a men's entrance and a women's entrance. And uh, go ahead. And this is the little thing there. They give you a little list of do's and don'ts. It's be a respectful place. It's, you know, begging is forbidden there. And, and uh, you've got to dress appropriately. You can't go in there dressed uh, inappropriately and so forth. Go to the next picture. And this is a picture of the wall itself. And it's called the, the Western Wall. This is actually the wall that they believe was, is closest to where the original Holy of Holies was. The Holy of Holies would have been up above there. And this wall was basically the closest that you could get physically to the Holy of Holies without um, desecrating it. So that's why it's kind of a, a holy place to Judaism as well as even in Christian Christianity. And you see, this is the, the men's side. I don't know if, go to the next slide there. You see all the trinkets they have. They have these little booths. They go in and pray and, and read scripture. They're all wearing certain kinds of things. Things hanging around their neck. Go next and you see them, they wear their hats, and that guy's got an interesting hat on there, <laughs> and uh, their yarmulkes, and you even, as a guest, you have to put something on your head, either a baseball cap, or they have a little paper yarmulke you put on, or they won't allow you up there. Go to the next one, and you see these guys with the things on their foreheads, and uh, that contained little, the prayer box and things like that, and, and they would, according to the Old Testament, they would put these things on their head, and it just kind of set them apart from everybody else, and you got something like that on your forehead, you can see why. Go to the next one. And here's a kid. You can see the leather straps. And the, oh, the Old Testament speaks of that. And it's, it's, it's just to remind them. It's to set them apart. It, it has certain designations as what it's reminding them as far as God is concerned. They always carry um, their, the, the, the word of God with them there. Go to the next 
slide. They also had this little section. It's kind of like a library off the, the beaten path there, off of the courtyard where you saw it there. And, um, and there's just books in there. And a lot of these guys would go in there, go to the next picture, and they just sit there for hours every day and just contemplate what they're reading. These are people that are reading the Old Testament. And it, it's, it's amazing to me that they have all their garb on, they have everything, go to the next picture, and you can see them. They, they do it out on the wall, and they're, they're, they're diligent students. Is there one more slider? Yeah. And what they do is they take these little papers, you write a little prayer on, and the tradition is, and you shove it in one of the cracks. And so in all the cracks on the wall, go to the next picture, you have all these little papers shoved in there. And you can see how it's just become kind of a vain religion, a tradition of sorts. But it reminded me of what Jesus really is talking about here, is that, you know what, until God reveals the Son to you, you're going to miss it. And that's basically what you have here, is that it doesn't matter how many beads you put on or how, what, kind of, what you look like or what you dress up like or whether you have yarmulke on your head or not, what kind of church you go to. It has nothing to do with that. All that stuff is empty. There's some beautiful temples over there, beautiful synagogues. It's all fruitless unless the Son has revealed himself to you. And he can't reveal it to anyone whose heart is not humble. And these people, believe me, think they got it all together. I mean, they may look humble on the outside, the way they dress and things sometimes, but they're very prideful, intellectually prideful individuals. If you've ever talked to uh, an unconverted Jew, you, you know that. And here, basically, this is a quote by Martin Luther, here the bottom falls out of all merit, all powers and abilities of reason or the free will men dream of. And it all counts nothing before God. Christ must do and must give everything. That's when someone is genuinely converted. That's why in John 1.18, the Bible says that no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten whom is in the bosom of the Father. He has what? Declared him. See, we can't see God. God is locked up in the Trinity in Christ. And God has to break into the, the, the blackness of our own heart for us to be revealed the truth to it all. So salvation then is the foundation of being humble, of having a humble, teachable heart, a humble of a baby, a heart of a baby being dependent on God. And then also the second word, their revelation. It comes from the gracious, sovereign God and he does it according to his will. He reveals the truth to the human heart. And the third term that we want to look at this morning is the word Repentance. Repentance, And it says there in verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, you may think, well, if God, if only people get saved, <laughs> are the people that God reveals it to, and God is sovereign in doing that, well, then what's the big deal? Why do we have to do anything? Does this statement say here in verse 28, come unto me, all you that are elect? Doesn't say that. <laughs> Doesn't say that at all. It says, come unto me, all you who are what? Weary, labor, and heavy laden. In John 6, the Lord says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And then he turns right around and he says, but him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. See, you have to understand there is sovereignty of God in salvation, but it's also an open invitation. That doesn't make sense to me in my mind. I'm sorry. If God is sovereign, then how can the invitation be open? I don't know, but it is. When you figure it out, come and see me, and we'll declare you God, because that's the only time that you're ever going to figure that one out. But we come to the next words here in verse 28, and it it's really speaks of the word repentance. The idea that you're, you're, you're coming onto Christ. He says, the men that will come are those who labor and are heavy laden. That word labor means that you're working to the point of exhaustion, sweat, exhaustion. Until you're absolutely, totally fatigued. You can't take another step. It was used of Christ in John 4, 6 when he spoke of himself being fatigued. You're totally out of gas. You're done with it. You can't do it. It's, it's also 
a, pre a present active participle, which means that you're in the process of totally wearing yourself out. <laughs> you're totally in the process of wearing yourself out. And it refers to the weary search for truth. You know, there's a lot of people today that are looking for truth in so many different ways. They're, they're looking for relief from this crushing load of uh, a sin-laden, guilt-ridden life. The crushing effort of trying to earn your own salvation. Pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Trying to make yourself better. Trying to reform yourself. Those of you who are frantically and tirelessly wearing yourselves out trying to earn your own salvation and find some peace of mind. Those of you who are working hard to rest, that's what he's talking about here. Those are the people he has in mind. You labor at it. He also says they're heavy laden, which means basically at some point in time, somebody dumped a load on you and you're, you're having to carry it. So you're already worn out. You're already exhausted beyond belief. And then somebody comes along and puts on you an incredible load on your back. It's not bad enough that you're already working hard. It's, you know, it's kind of like if you were out running and, and you were just worn out totally. And then somebody stops the car and says, hey, come here a second. I got something for you. And they, they give you a 300-pound backpack to wear. And they say, have a nice day. <laughs> And you've you got to carry this thing around, and you're continuing to run, and you're just exhausted beyond belief. You're staggering under the weight of this backpack because you're already tired. And then somebody pulls up to you and says, what are you doing? And your answer is, I'm trying to get rest. <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense. You would say, what? Well, see, in, in the day that Jesus wrote this, he spoke this, the day in which this was recorded, this is exactly what the rabbis were doing to the people. They were telling them, they're already, they already realize basically they're sinful before God, and then the rabbis come along and say, well, okay, you have the Ten Commandments, well, that's not good enough. We're going to make up a whole bunch of other stuff that you have to keep. A bunch of minutia. They called it the oral law. And so instead of just, you know, honoring the Sabbath and just keeping it simple like that, we're going to give you a bunch of other stuff. You can't carry a stick that's longer than a foot. You can't do all this. You can't do that. They made up all sorts of crazy rules. And then they said, have a nice rest in your religion of Judaism. And it was fruitless. They had no contentment. They had no joy. They had no happiness. See, and only that comes, only that rest, that salvation comes when you get to the place where you just can't take another step. Then he says, come to me. If you're tired of carrying the load of guilt, the load of sin, you're try tired of doing it your own way and not making any progress, Christ is there and he says, you know what? Come to me. Stop going the way you're going. Turn 180 degrees. That's what repentance is. It means giving up your feeble effort of trying to become religious, of trying to earn a right, righteous relationship with God. It's impossible. Give it up. Turn away from that and turn to me. Turn to the cross. Turn to Christ. Because that's what the Jewish rabbis did in Jesus' day. They just piled burdens on their people constantly. Peter said that they gave a yoke which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear in Acts 15.10. In Matthew 23.40, our Lord had some strong words. He says, for they bind, concerning the Pharisees and the scribes, they bind heavy burdens and, and grievous to be borne. And lay them on man's short shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So he's saying, you're trying to earn your own salvation. You've had someone come along and dump a bunch of rules on you and says, if you keep these rules, well, maybe eventually you'll make the track to rest, to Canaan, to salvation. But that just results in more guilt. It results in more sin. It results in more unforgiveness in your life. 
And finally, you reach a point where you're total desperation. You can't take another step. And Jesus says, come to me and you'll find rest. Come to me and you'll find salvation. This call of repentance is to those who are dissatisfied with the way things are going. It's to the people who haven't found the answer. And they're tired of looking. They know they don't have the answer. They know they can't pull themselves into the kingdom of God by self-exertion. They Somehow they failed. They've done it all, and it hasn't worked. And they're basically overpowered by their own sin. They know they're lost, and, and God is crying out to them. Repent. Stop going that way. Turn around. And be converted. Come to Christ and he'll give you that rest. Repentance is bound up in salvation. We don't have time, but you can look through the New Testament over and over and over again where you find the word repentance. It it always has to deal with salvation. There's no salvation if there's no repentance. Because repent means to turn to God. Turn away from your sinful self. Turn to God. The fourth element of true invitation is faith. Verse 28 it says, come unto me, all ye that, uh, all that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice it says, I'll give you rest. The object of our faith, when you turn away from sin, is not a church. It's not a pastor. It's not you know, some school or trying to reform your own life. It's Christ. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. That's why he says, come unto me. And last week, we looked at what that means. When he says, come unto me, that means believe on me. And when he says, believe on me, that means that you come unto me. John 6.35 says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. Salvation is this. It's believing that Jesus is God. Believing that he entered into this world, that he died a substitutionary death. He died in your place. And then he rose from the grave on the third day for our justification. And he ascended into heaven, the Bible says. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes for us. And not only that, but he's coming again one day. See, that Jesus can save you from your sins if you put your faith, your trust in him today. That's belief. That's believing in Christ. Does it end there? One last word quickly. And this is a critical word in verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Last word is a word that a lot of people don't like. The word submission. The word submission. He says, take my yoke upon you. What is he referring to? What's he talking about here? He's talking about submission as it's involved salvation. I mean, there's a responsibility to submit to the one who's saving you. There's a responsibility to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's all part of salvation. You cannot come to Jesus Christ just as your savior, but I'm not going to come to him as my lord yet. I just want him to save me from from hell. I don't want to commit my whole life to him. I don't want to become a religious freak. I just want to know that I'm not going to hell. Well, beloved, it's impossible. Either... He saves you completely and he's your Lord or he doesn't save you at all. You can't come to Christ as Savior and then later decide, well, now I'm really going to live for him and now I'll make him my Lord. I hear people say that all the time. Well, you know, I got saved when I was in my teenage years and then for, for years, you know, I just did my own thing. Did whatever I wanted to do. And then finally, um, you know, when I was in my 20s, I, I finally made Jesus Lord of my life. And I always say, you mean that's when you got saved? And a lot of times they'll say, oh, no, 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 I was saved all along. And I'll I'll always say, no, you weren't. That's not what a Christian does. And he uses this word yoke here, and it refers to when you had oxen, they would bring the oxen into a carpenter's 
shop, basically. And Jesus probably even made these yokes. So this is a very personal illustration for him when he worked in his dad's carpentry shop. They would bring the oxen in and they would take this wood and they'd put it around the neck of the oxen and they'd kind of hewn it out and, 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 and uh, saw it out and sand it and make it nice and, and fit it. And then they'd bring the ox back again once it was kind of roughly fit and they'd fit it again. They had to make sure that this thing fit good around there because they didn't want it to chaff the ox because that would cause the oxen to devalue in price and couldn't bear the load. And so it was very important that this, this yoke was made properly. But the whole reason they wore a yoke was it had to submit, that animal was, was owned, and it had to submit to its leader, to its owner. And so if the, the farmer wanted it to carry, you know, some load out in the field, well, that, that, that yoke around its neck made it submit. And see, and that's basically what this is, is speaking of here. It's talking about our willingness to submit our lives to Christ. And then he adds the phrase there, and learn of me. The yoke is a yoke of submission to his lordship. And then he just says, learn of me. In other words, you're also submitting to his teaching, to his instruction. A Christian who says, well, I'm going to go do this. And then you point him out in the word of God. Well, you know what? If you do that, you're dishonoring Christ. God's word says that you shouldn't do that. Well, that's irrelevant to me. I don't know how that person could ever be a Christian (laughs) because there's something wrong, okay? They're not bearing the yoke of Christ. They're not learning of him. That word means to be his disciple, by the way. Learn of me. It's the same word that's used for the word disciple. It involves acknowledging his lordship and being committed to those good works that were created beforehand for us to do, as Ephesians 2.10 says. See, when we're saved, beloved... The Word of God says that God has created good works for us to do. And you might say, well, I thought salvation is all of grace. Well, of course it's all of grace. How could a baby do anything else? A baby can't help itself. A baby can't work for anything. We're compared to babies if we come to Christ. And so there aren't any works at all involved in salvation. But after we're saved, then God says that he's created good works for us to do even before the foundation of the world. And that's the yoke of Christ. And if you're thinking, well, gee, what's it going to be like to be under a Christ yoke? I may just stay the way I am right now. Well, look at what he says. He says, come, take my yoke. Learn from me. And then he says this, for I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. I'm not like these prideful religious leaders who are burdening you down with all this minutia that they, they say you have to keep and the way you dress. and everything. It has nothing to do with that. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. And he says, and you will find rest for your souls. And in the end there, he says, my yoke is what? Easy. My burden is light. You want to bear the burden yourself? Go ahead. I think that's a silly, silly choice to make. But if you want to come to Christ, you have to understand the invitation is open. It's open to whoever can humble their heart, is able to look at themselves and realize that they have a need and then come and put their faith, their trust in a Christ who loves them, who died for them and who's able to change them into the person that he designed you to be. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, your, your word says that when we come to your son, we will find rest. We will find salvation for our souls. And Lord, we know that after he spoke this parable, as we get into chapter 12 next week, that the persecution and the hatred of Christ is really kicked up a notch. Because this was a message that people could not comprehend. They did not like the message that Jesus just taught them. But it's the truth. Until we come with a humble heart and God has revealed his truth to us, and that we've repented. He's granted us repentance, and we put our faith not in a church or, or a person, but we put our faith in Christ himself, in the very creator God, and we're willing to submit ourselves to his teaching and to his lordship. That is what genuine salvation is all about. And whenever you see someone who's saved in the New Testament, and it's genuine, you see a radical change in their life. They don't have to learn Christianity. That you change their heart. You change them from the inside out. And Lord, I pray today that if there's anyone here 
that desires to be changed from the inside out. I pray that they would cry out to you. And maybe they have questions that haven't been answered. I pray that they would cry out to you, that they would bring their questions to you, that they would at least take the time to search it out, to ask you to reveal yourself to them in a way that only you can. I know you'll answer that prayer. And I pray for believers here that we would be built up and that we'd be excited to go out to a lost and dying world to share the gracious, forgiving gospel message of Christ with those who've yet to hear it and respond. Knowing that it's by your, your sovereign will that people are saved, we're not to go out and save people. That's not what you've called us to do. You've called us to go out and be the messengers of a life-giving, life-changing gospel. And as we're faithful to that task, we know that some will come. And we thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.